Aaron, and welcome to The World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, a future that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At The World Transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us, and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Wednesday. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm doing great. Doing great. I almost worked amazing into the name of this show. Because if you want to know how I'm doing, you know what I am, Stephen? I'm a renaissance cyborg. That's what I am. <laughs> well, if you're going to be a renaissance cyborg, you might as well be an amazing renaissance cyborg, right? So That's what I was thinking. I was, I was thinking that that's an amazing thing, but maybe not. We're going to go through this. Maybe being renaissance cyborgs, as we will define it, is not an amazing thing. Maybe that's just kind of a baseline for where we have to be in the world today. But we'll get to that. We're going to come to what that term means this is, I'm also calling this show Specialization is for Insects, Part 2. And for those who wonder what in the world that means, I will direct you to a show we did back in December of last year called Realizing Possibilities Fast, P.S., Specialization is for Insects, in which we looked at the wonderful one-year plan of a fellow named Max Deutsch, his a month to master challenge that he did in the year 2017. And he was taking on all these different big challenges, memorizing the order of a deck of cards, landing a standing backflip, playing a five-minute improvisational blues guitar solo. Every month he was trying to take on some new challenge and get good at it within a month. And we talked about how he sort of loaded the deck in his favor to make it possible for him to do these things in a month. But that basically... This guy was awesome, uh, that, that he had yeah. set out to do a whole lot of different things and managed to find a way to do each of them and did them all in a year. And it spoke to this interesting distinction between the specialist in us and the generalist in us. As, as, as the world becomes more specialized, as as we become more digitized, there is a tendency for us to become more specialized in our professions, in our interests, kind of in our social groups. Every, digitization allows for almost infinite specialization. And here's a guy stepping away from that saying, well, you know what? I'm going to do a lot of different things. And we used to call somebody who mastered a whole host of different topics that was called a Renaissance man, right? Somebody who, like right. Leonardo da Vinci, he was a He's a scientist, he's a painter, he's a sculptor, he's a musician. He's all these different things at the same time, the Renaissance man. Well, uh, I don't think the term Renaissance man is politically correct these days. I think that leaves out <laughs> half of humanity. So we're, Especially we're, since women make better generalists than men do, by and large, anyway. Men tend to obsess over one thing. And uh, that's that's just what we do. And, and women are by nature generalists. It may go all the way back to 
the, the Stone Age. You know, just men had to obsess on uh, the hunt, whereas uh, women had to keep everything else. Had to do everything else. <laughs> That'll make a generalist out of you. And so uh, women are t- tend to be generalists. So a Renaissance man is really more like a woman than, than in the past he might have been. That's so, interesting. Uh, so in the Renaissance, men started catching up, basically. Uh, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to... It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of the idea. And I thought, well, instead of just saying Renaissance people, I wanted to add a, an element here. It's not that we're moving away from the technology. We're going to embrace it even more deeply. We're going to use the technology, but rather than having that technology make us just smaller and smaller, we're going to use it to make us broader and more general. So we're going to be these Renaissance cyborgs. That's where the, that's where the phrase comes from. And I saw this article about Buckminster Fuller over on brain pickings, and it reminded me so much of that show that we had done that I thought, hey, you know, we've got to spend some time talking about this. Buckminster Fuller's Manifesto for the Genius of Generalists. And, and we talked about it just from a perspective of how practical it is, how helpful it is in your, in your day-to-day life if you, if you kind of broaden your perspective a little bit. But keeping in line with our philosophical week that we're having here, I thought that Buckminster Fuller's thoughts on this were really quite interesting and I think maybe very telling, kind of inform a little bit of what we were talking about on Monday's show. Basically, what, what Bucky says is that as we get more specialized, we move ourselves in the direction of extinction. And he makes the case that when animals go extinct, it's because they've become overly specialized. They, they become too adapted to a particular set of requirements within their environment. They become too dependent on one particular prey. There, there are all these different things that can happen. But as you get narrower and narrower in your focus, the chances that as a species you're going to survive go down. And when, when extinctions occur, it's often because the species has become too specialized. Now, that's exactly the kind of thing that you read from him, and you never hear anyplace else, right? I, I don't think I've, yeah. I've ever heard anyone make that argument before. Or I, or maybe it's familiar to you, but is that a new idea to you? No, no, it, I, it, it is. As well, uh, it is a, a relatively new idea. It, and that's, that's typical of, you know, read Buckminster Fuller. I mean, he, yeah. is, he is a fountainhead of, just fascinating ideas that we, we probably don't acknowledge him enough, Phil, because so much of the intellectual underpinnings of, of what we talk about are, you know, come from this guy. Absolutely true. He outlines a system he calls synergetics. And the word synergy is well used. It's a popular term. It's very popular in the business world, has been for decades now. And there, actually, there's a great Dilbert cartoon from years ago where they were talking about their security procedures to make sure the competitors never get in and see their stuff, right? And uh, some breaches occurred, and now they're totally they're worried sick that the competitors are going to come in and look at all their competitor stuff. And then uh, the next panel, it shows we're someplace else, and there's a little subtitle that says the competition. So they're in, right? And they're looking through the stuff, and the one guy is saying to the other one, oh, look, they're going to utilize synergy, right? And they're both just laughing at us. <laughs> because, you know, they're big. They're, we, they're, we would never have thought to have done that. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, big, they're big dark corporate secrets. They're, they're, their big strategic edge is like all this bland corporate speak, right? These, these terms that people get a hold of and they, 
and they just they just throw them around. So synergy has kind of I, I, I'm afraid it's become one of those one of those terms. It's like paradigm. People throw it out there, and they don't really have a good, clear, crisp definition of what it means. But when when Buckminster Fuller, Fuller talks about synergy, he's talking about this process whereby the whole is not predictable from looking at the individual parts. And you only get a picture of what's happening if you look at the whole. And he, he makes, in his books, he makes wonderful examples of this. And, and you can see it in engineering, you can see it in architecture, and you can see it in how societies organize as well. And I'm going to read just a little quote from him. He says, Only a comprehensive switch from the narrowing specialization and toward an ever more inclusive and reigning comprehension by all humanity regarding all the factors covering omni-continuing life aboard our spaceship Earth. God, you got to love that kind of language, huh? Can bring about reorientation from the self-extinction-bound human trending and do so with the critical time remaining before we've passed the point of chemical process irretrievability. So... This is serious business as far as Buckminster Fuller is concerned. He sees, he sees humanity potentially spinning off in the wrong direction and views this as one of our biggest threats, that specialization actually becomes one of our biggest threats. And I know we talk about this kind of ideological isolation that people engage in, and I think that's just another example of sort of technology-driven specialization that occurs, where we only kind of think one set of thoughts and we reinforce those and we go deeper and deeper down our, our individual rabbit holes. Well, that's one piece of it. But I think probably just not seeing the whole picture is the, is the bigger piece of it, that we don't step back and try to take this broader, sweeping perspective. And I really feel that our society discourages that in a big way. As soon as you, as soon as you start speaking in generalizations, of course, uh, people will call you on it and say, oh, you're being, you're being too broad. But beyond even that, if you try to take a kind of civilization view, level view of what's happening in the world, no one seems interested in that, right? They want to talk about specifically what's happening in economics, right? Or specifically what's happening in this political race, or specifically what's happening with the rollout of this particular product. And it's a lot easier to get, to get specific than it is to be general. And, and I think we've kind of trained ourselves, we've been trained, and we've sort of trained ourselves to think only in that mode. And we really have to start turning that around. We've got to, we've got to become generalists if we're ever going to be Renaissance cyborgs. And I think we've got to be Renaissance cyborgs. We talked about this on the show we did back in December because the AIs are going to be the specialists anyway, right? <laughs> That's true. Well, in a small organization, Phil, I'm an attorney uh, that specializes in one particular little small field of, of, of law, personal injury. But because it's such a small firm, whatever is required uh, often will fall to me. I don't have uh, 15 staff attorneys under me to do what various things. So, shoot, I'll, I'll, I'll sweep the place out if I need to, right? It's, it, that's a lot of times... If you are in a small enough organization, you it, you tend to be it tends to guard you against over specialization because, you know whatever needs to be done, you, somebody's got to do it, and so um, that that helps. I think the ultimate guard against it is something like the coffee shopification model that I've that I've talked about a number of times. That uh, when you are kind of a, got a project based mindset and that you're you, you're forming ad hoc groups to do this project or that project in sort of a 
coffee shop type environment. You know, it doesn't have to be a coffee shop, but you know what I'm saying. Sure. We, uh, then it, we know it, what we mean, yeah. You don't specialize, or at least you don't for long. You might have a particular thing that you're doing within this project, but you're always looking to the next project, right? And, you're, and, and you may be working with an entirely different group of people and doing an entirely different sorts of, uh, sorts of work, and you, you better be ready to make the transition in that type of environment. I think Buckminster Fuller would approve of the coffee shop model, <laughs> you know, that, uh, and the ad I think so. I, absolutely. I think so. I think one of, the, one of the cases that he often makes is that resource-wise, we're able to manage resources on this planet now such that the notion of universal employment becomes less and less necessary, right? And if you're, if you're a generalist who thinks that people should be out broadening their knowledge and pursuing various you know, intellectual interests, trying out creative things, learning more things, doing, doing more interesting things, that's a great direction for a post-employment world to go. He, he talks around post-scarcity and post-employment, these topics that, that we talk about all the time. And he makes the case for them just on a kind of a moral grounds. It's like it's, it's wrong to, have, to make people into cogs in, in this machinery. We'll use machinery for that, and then people can be freed to do, to do all these wonderful creative things. Well, this is where I think folks like ourselves in the 21st century, we can look at it and we can go, sadly, I don't know that everyone's as idealistic as Buckminster Fuller. And if we eliminate employment, do people just right, begin educating themselves and, and setting themselves out in all these wonderful creative and productive pursuits? A lot of people will. Right, a lot of people will, but I'm not sure what happens to to most people. Most people who are currently doing a job that Bucky would look at and say that's too specialized. They should be they should be doing something else. If they're just given, you know, we talk about like universal basic income. If you if you put them on that plan, what are they going to do then? Right. What the, the question is, what happens to those people next? Well, I, I don't mean to start that whole discussion, but just to say that I think that it's not a slam dunk that they're going to go off and become scholars and philosophers and scientists and stuff like that, right? That, that, that people might do, they, they, they might do something else other than that. So, so the whole model of just turning the economy on its head is one that we are trepidatious about. Bucky was not. He was like, the sooner we can get people off this whole employment bag, the better. And we look at him and we go, well, maybe, right? We don't know what the alternatives <laughs> exactly. to that are. And, yeah. and, I mean, it sounds yeah. great for us. I'm, I'm ready, but, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but I, whether I'm it works sure out great for all of humanity, that. I don't know. Maybe we need yeah. to work on becoming generalists first and then getting rid of employment, right? It could be that, that we have to do that in the right order. We, we have to philosophically prepare ourselves for a world where, where there's no employment. So how do we do that, right? How do we become generalists? How do we do it individually, and how do we start to shape society in that kind of direction. And I'll tell you, I can't remember which one of his books it is. I'll, I'll go back and look, and if I can find it, I'll, I'll put a link to it. But in one of his books, Bucky talks about this idea of comprehensive knowledge, of trying to know the whole, the whole big picture. And the example he uses is the U.S. Navy. He said that up until about, I think it was like the 1920s or 1930s, being trained as a naval officer was like the best education that you could get anywhere in the world because it was the most generalist. 
education you could get anywhere in the world, that, that they were learning philosophy, they were learning history, they were learning how mechanical systems operate, they were learning how to administrate an organization, uh, they were learning all this geography because they could end up anywhere, right, <laughs> dealing with right. just about any group of people. And it was this wonderful, comprehensive, generalist education that ultimately, I think, probably World War II more than anything else, destroyed and, and moved them in much more kind of, kind of uh, specialist directions. But is it possible to recapture some of that? Is it possible to give ourselves some version of that old Navy training from a century ago? I don't know. What can we do? How can, how can we make ourselves more able to see the big picture? And how can we move ourselves away from constant specialization to a broader perspective. I thought it would be a great idea, Stephen, if you and I made a few suggestions to that end. And we both put lists together independently. And wouldn't you know, uh, I said, let's each come up with three things. And two out of the three things you and I are <laughs> right, <laughs> completely, completely in agreement. That's right. Yeah, we, we came up together. So what was your first item? Well, my first item was just read widely. And there and and don't just read stuff that confirms your prior viewpoints on things. There's a tendency to build for yourself an echo chamber of ideas. So if you if you like this particular book, then you know try this book, which is you know more of the same, right? Right. No, read read widely so that you know it may be that you you end up in the same place that you're at now, uh, thinking about something, but. Now you're in better position to defend that because you know what uh, you know what the other people are thinking and what the other ideas on it are. So read widely is uh, is my first one. Yeah, well, and I I agree, and and it speaks to not just the ideological stuff, which is a good idea. If you're if you're predisposed right. to be more conservative, read some liberals, vice versa, right? Understand all those arguments, but it goes well beyond that too. If you're only interested in technology, read a book about art, right? If your big interest in this world is like movies and showbiz and stuff like that, you know, read a book about politics. Just broaden the scope. Read about things that you don't think you're interested in. For one thing, things you don't think you're interested in turn out to be kind of interesting a lot of the time. If handled by a good you writer. Did, you did not know that how fascinating it was prior to, prior to dipping your toe in it. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, and, and suddenly you're amazed by how interesting something that you had no interest in before is. And I think if you, if you spread it out a little bit, yeah, instead of just reinforcing what you're already interested in, because you don't have to make yourself read a book about things you're interested in. You'll go find that book and read it, right? You're, you're on that site all the time anyway. But you, it does take a little bit of an effort to step out and say, well, what's something I've never really thought about much? And I'm going to go look at that. And I would add... Read old books, and, and yeah. I'm making this back when they used to try to generalize, because publishing today is very much about specialization, and the topics of books tend to be extremely narrow. We published a book last year that I'm quite proud of was as broad as you can be, Visions for a World Transformed. It was every possible approach to how the world can be different. And it's got philosophy in there. It's got humor in there. It's got really detailed, specific scientific ideas. So it's a whole lot of little specializations, but packaged together as one broad generalist view. But that's the exception. Most books are not that. Most books these days are very specialized, very narrow 
tar- targeted to a particular audience kind of thing. But there was a time when books were written to the quote-unquote general reader, right? We, we, were, we, were making, we were discussing, was it last week or the week before, the whole idea of the reasonable person, right, which is a fiction yeah. that, that, that seems to be disappo- disappearing from our world. Well, there also used to be kind of the idea of the generally well-educated human being who would be interested in everything. And so all books were written for them, not targeted to a particular, a particular demographic. So, so older books took that perspective. So in addition to reading recently published books, read older books. And my example from this one is one I referenced on Monday's show that I've been reading. It's closer to 100 years old than not, this book, The Story of Civilization. It was actually written in the 1930s. So it misses out on an awful lot of history. You know, you say it's this comprehensive history of civilization. Well, it misses out on the 20th century, right? All the big stuff. I mean, it's got World War I in there, but it doesn't have World War II. It doesn't have the Cold War. There's, there's a lot missing. But what is there is the broad sweep, right? It's the, it's, I'm going to look at all of it. I'm going to look at Mesopotamia. I'm going to look at India, China, Egypt, I'm going to look at Europe. I'm going to break down each country in Europe. And, and it's just this, this great attempt to put all the different pieces together, to look at the whole, the whole picture at the same time. People used to write books like that. I don't, think, I don't think there's an equivalent today. I don't think anyone is trying to write the whole history of civilization today, unfortunately. Did, is that H.G. Wells' uh, history that you're referring to? Uh, because he, he did something it's actually, similar. It's called The Story of Civilizations by Will Durant. But that's another great okay. example. H.G. Wells yeah. is another great example where you would take on all of history, right, <laughs> to, write, right. to write it all and, and, and put it in one book or one, one set of volumes. That's where you go, right? That's where your brain goes. Can you think of anyone writing anything comparable to that today? Because I, I, I can't think of anyone. Which is a shame because we we know so much more about even ancient civilizations than those guys who were writing back in the 30s and before knew. We've learned that's right. That, that's right. And uh, we we need somebody to synthesize that in, in some grand history. And uh, I'm not I'm not aware of anybody that's working on that. No, I, I think probably after about the middle part of the 20th century, even viewing that as a valid effort just went away. Looking at the looking at the whole sweeping thing. I'm hoping it makes a comeback. If 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 it takes you and I to do it, Stephen, we'll we'll go do it. We'll go right there. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we're reasonably qualified. Well, that's a great thing. How do you be qualified to to write a general history of the whole world? You just have to read a lot of history, I suppose. Anyway, I'm working on it with this one book, so I'll finish that and maybe I'll. I don't know. At that point, I got to go read a book on pottery or something like that, so I can so I can <laughs> broaden my perspective. But, but there's there's the there's the start reading. And then you and I both listed the same thing. I said YouTube is your friend, and you said YouTube. YouTube yep. is, is a it's great amazing. way to specialize, but it's the easiest way in the world to generalize too, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Anything you want to know. If you want to be shown how to do a physical task in the world, a lot of times reading is not the best way to get to that because they're having to reconstruct in words what a picture would so much uh, better communicate. YouTube is that way, in a, in a way that television never could be. Back when we were kids, Phil, maybe once a week, maybe on a Saturday or something, there'd be some show for handyman or a handyman show or something where they would show you how to how to uh, do something uh, as a handyman, right? Or right. Uh, maybe a fishing fishing show or something that would show you how to uh, cut lures or something. But nowadays, you don't have to wait for some some show like that to come out on television, which 
never could be what YouTube can be, which is anybody has an interest. You set up a camcorder, you speak into it, and then you publish it. And it might only be a half dozen people in the world that have any interest in it, but they love that. Those half dozen people, that helps them. Right. And uh, so YouTube is an amazing resource for that kind well, of Well, and we all already use it for practical knowledge in a pinch anyway. Right. Where we, where we want to become renaissance cyborgs in our own homes, or at least I do. I, I think probably most people do. I've got a piece of equipment, and suddenly I don't remember how to do something with it. Do I go look up the manual? No. I, I go to YouTube, right, and I watch a video of somebody using it correctly. I'm like, ah, that's right. The other night, one of the kids locked the bathroom door somehow and closed the door, so we're locked out of our own bathroom, right? So I've got to pick the bathroom lock. Obviously, as the father in the house, you know that that sort of duty falls on you. Well, where do I go? Go to YouTube, right? It's like, hey, how do I pick my own lock? Those kinds of practical day-to-day things that at one time, what would you do? You'd call somebody. You'd call a locksmith. You know, you'd, you'd call maybe if you got a less reputable friend who might know how to pick a lock. But now that kind of information is, is just... <laughs> but do you want the less reputable friend in your home? I mean, no, you don't. You've got to ask him over the phone how to do it. Yeah, you don't invite him <laughs> exactly. over. Exactly. Walk me through this. <laughs> you say, generally, how would you go about <laughs> doing, doing this thing? But that's great because I, I think we really are getting much more practical knowledge, and it's going to help us in a, in a post-scarcity world where we're going to be in a, in a kind of a coffee shopified world where we have to do a lot of things for ourselves anyway. I really do think we're heading towards a more generalist existence and that technologies like YouTube will help us. But, but we need to broaden that and also pursue intellectual interests on YouTube right. and, and in our reading. It, so, if so, you want to do some sort of organized study, there are or, online resources for that. MIT was the first school to put uh, all of their classes online. They, they have their open courseware. And right. Harvard, has, Harvard followed suit closely thereafter and several other schools. I mean, they... If you're interested in something like that, that they're teaching, you can follow along. Now, the, the credentialing is not the same. They, in, they're, they're experimenting with some aspects of credentialing for those who, who do the open co- courseware. But if, if, that, if you don't care about the credential... And, you and we don't. Hey, know, we're trying to make people generalists. We're not trying to get people Yeah, that's right. If you just want to know, the, um, I mean, the world is an open book now in a lot of ways. A lot of the stuff uh, that was, you know, would have been impossible in the past to, to, to follow in a, any, any kind of organized way, it's, it's right there now. It's yeah. true. I would just add to that, if you're not interested in something, think about taking a course on it too. And you know what? If you're not ready to take a full college course, go to Khan Academy, right, on YouTube. And That's right, you, yeah. You, you, can, you can look at short videos on a wide variety of subjects. And especially if math's not your thing, that's the site to go to. Go learn some math. Definitely get uh, get bigger on math. And then my final thought is we need to bring back the notion of generalist childhood. Because I'm speaking as a person with young children in the house, and you know, they are really turning kids into specialists early these days, particularly around the activities that they participate in. You know, I know kids as young as like five and six years old who are doing hockey every night, and it's like this yeah. life-consuming thing where they... They're, they're, they're playing hockey, and it's like, well, then they're going to have a hockey camp next summer, and then they got the hockey team, and, then, and, and it'll be basically 12 years of hockey through college, and then some of them will go on and play college hockey, but the vast majority will not. And so they, they will have had this really finely honed hockey experience, 
And what else will they have done? I always worry about kids like that. They're the, they're the middle-aged guy that's sitting in the stand, uh, you know, watching hockey players that made it, dreaming about what could be, what could have been. For them. <laughs> well, I, I think I, you know, I, I think bit. at this point, hopefully, that there it it doesn't end in that kind of that level of frustration. At least I, I hope they have fun with it while they're while they're doing it. And I mean, and you right. see some of these activities, they don't even have a girls who participate in what's called competitive cheer which looks like yeah. it's a lot of fun. The, the moms enjoy it. The kids enjoy it. But it's cheerleading. It's cheerleading and competing with other – I don't even know that there is a professional career path for that. And, and most women, I'm sure, don't even think about pursuing that the way a guy might think that maybe someday he's going to be a hockey star. But it's that, it's that same level of commitment. You know, you've got it every night. You've got it every weekend. You've got it every summer. And what else was there in life? When we were kids, at least when I was a kid – you would play some baseball in the summer. You would do something else in the winter. You'd go home and watch TV. You'd read books. Life was not nearly as structured. And I think yeah. one of the things that structuring kids' lives has done is it's forced them to hone in on a particular thing and specialize at a, at a very early age. And I'm not saying that it's not a good idea for a kid to play a sport or take a sport seriously or to get good at it. But, but the idea that from age six on, that is your activity seems pretty limiting to me. There's an awful lot of different things you could be interested in, awful lot of different things you could try, and six is kind of young to be committing, in my, <laughs> in my opinion. You know? <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. You know, especially during those, during those formative years. So I, I think some, some unstructured childhood would really, would really benefit us a lot. And that's the right place to start, because if we, if we start out as generalists, specialize as we need to for career and stuff, but our but our basic instinct is to look at that broader picture. I think we've got more nearly the world that Bucky was looking for. And with Absolutely. that, Stephen, I'm sorry, did you have another one, another suggestion? Well, I, um, I, w I wanted to add another website for places to go if you just want to learn something. Masterclass.com is one of those that I just, you know, you, you, want, you want to learn how to, um, you know, do pottery or something like that or, you know, some, any kind of skill like that. There are places like that website, uh, Masterclass, that uh, can teach you stuff like that. So that, there's lots of resources that just haven't been available before that are that way uh, that will teach you. But for my third thing, I was just going to say just a bravery to, to uh, discard conventional wisdom. Have the courage to just say, you know what, everybody thinks about things this way and knows that it must be this way. Um, let me just uh, step back for just a second and reevaluate conventional wisdom and see if, they're, if that's absolutely the way it has to be. It's the eccentrics and the weirdos that seem to always end up redefining the world. If there's anything you could say about Elon Musk, he's not a normal guy, right? I mean, you, just, you can just see it when he talks and everything. He's a different, he's a different cat. I mean, that's just him. But... He, he's redefining so many fields just because he, he has a willingness to, to tear it down and say, you know what, we don't, we don't have to spend $11 billion to develop a rocket to get into orbit. I'll, I'll do it for $500 million. And that's what, that's what the Falcon Heavy cost. I uh, think Elon Musk is the kind of guy that Buckminster Fuller would have approved of. Here's a guy oh, man. Yeah, those, those who, guys who set out to become no a doubt. billionaire. Why? So that he could send people to Mars. Right. I mean, that's right. I, I don't doubt that for a minute, by the way, when he says that. Yeah. 
Hey, Most people, when they get have, rich, it's so they can serious. be rich, right? Yeah, <laughs> Most I mean, people, it's so they can have a yacht or whatever. He said, no, I needed the billions so I could finance my plan to take humanity to Mars, right? I mean, that is right, thinking right. differently, okay? That is... Uh, right. So and and, and how am I going to do that? Then, uh, electric car company. Here's how. I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> and you don't have to be a billionaire to, to make a contribution in the world either. You can, just by seeing something a little differently and pursuing something just a, just a hair different from, uh, from, you know, most people, you can set yourself apart in this world and make yourself a valuable person. Who, who makes a who makes a real contribution? And, yeah, uh, well, have a have an idea, have a vision. Yeah. Think about ideas and think about something that maybe goes against the grain a little bit. I think you're right, Stephen. That one should be number one. Okay, number one. Think differently. Then start reading. Then start YouTubing. Then start taking classes, and yeah. and see if your thinking doesn't change even beyond that. And with that. We're going to have to leave this subject because we've gone drastically over for a Wednesday. This was an amazing show after all. We just had so much to say on this subject. <laughs> and we've hardly scratched the surface, so I know we'll, we'll come back to this one again soon. But not this week because we've got Friday coming up. And guess what, Stephen? It's an all-geek-out Friday. We're going to be talking about the Cloverfield Paradox and other movie franchises. And it uh, promises to be a... Well, I think an edifying time is I set you straight on a number of things. So <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Bill, you know, we, we, we too often agree on everything. I think uh, Friday we're, we're going to actually disagree on uh, the Cloverfield Paradox. So, I, I, anyway. think, I think we are, well, at the beginning, but by the end you'll, you'll be okay. <laughs> How those shows usually end, so it'll be great. Anyway, uh, great, great talking with you, Stephen. Great having you all with us. We will be back Friday with a brand new show. And until next time, live to see it. 